The title of this morning's talk is Things as They Are. In yesterday's talk, which many of you have heard, but not everyone, um, I talked about training the mind so that it can see things as they are quoting the Buddha in that expression. Today's talk is about what we see when we see things as they are. Turn a phrase meaning seeing things undistorted by delusion. In order to make very clear the distinction between things as they are and things as they are not, between things distorted, sorry, things, yes, distorted, not undistorted, and things distorted, let me start by spelling out with some illustrations what is it like to see things as they are not. In fact, maybe this is nothing that we have to belabor too much. We have lost sight to what's re it's real in our culture to such an extent that we keep use using the word reality to refer to the most deceitful imitation, namely the reality TV shows. <laughs> But leaving TV and this uh, elaborations aside, even in the most trivial circumstances of our lives, it's so easy to fall for our fabrications. Let me, let me give just a couple of examples. When I call my daughters over the phone, they recognize my voice. There's no problem. I don't have to say, I'm your dad. So I was taken aback one day when I called my older daughter, and she didn't know who I was. I identified myself. She refused to recognize me as who I was. Guess what? She had just installed her color t ID in her telephone, and the color ID gave another number. So it couldn't be me, could it? <laughs> We've recovered from that. <laughs> and then there's this, another story about Raquel and me. She probably knows that I'm driving at. <laughs> We do share a double bed, I should mention. And in a particular light night, I got up to go to the bathroom, and Raquel did so shortly afterwards. But she hadn't noticed that I had left the bed. So when she got to the bathroom, she got the fright of her life. <laughs> Who's this guy there doing his thing? I mean, 
<laughs> they had been relegated to the bed, you see. So everything <laughs> ever since in the comedy of our life, there's this guy. The guy in the bathroom, actually, we say it in Spanish, el tipo del baño. <laughs> we never figured out who he was. <laughs> now, these are two instances of fabrications coarse, coarse enough to be described and, and laughed at and so on, but there's so many much subtler ones that pervade our life so that we don't even know we've made a fabrication. But again, it's so difficult to talk about that uh, in general, not in particular. So let me go back to the sort of cultural fabrications like TV and movies. So let's go to the movie house. When we're in a movie house watching a movie, we tend to get so caught up in the plot, in the action on the screen, and more often than not, we end up identifying with a particular character, do we not, on the screen, or, or feeling great love for this other character on the screen. Or identifying with a situation on the screen. And in this process, that part of us that constitutes what's called the ego, the I, gets enormously puffed up. Soon enough, the rest of us gets relegated into oblivion. Now, there is, in the movie house, a, a simple way, at least for a moment, to rescue back from oblivion the rest of us. And it's rather simple. I don't know if you've ever tried. I tried it once. I was pretty amazed. You know, in the, in the regular mo in the movie house. You turn back, and in the back of the movie house of the hall, there, there usually are two windows leading from the projection room. One is the room from which the projection is looked out. But the other is the room where the, a beam of light from the projector fans out onto the screen. And so, look at that, and that is indeed a step towards the real. For a moment at least, hey, I'm in my movie house. Maybe I'm with a friend, so this friend is next to me. Um, I feel cold, I feel hot, you know. But then, soon enough, look at the screen, get caught back into whatever we were. In fact, we, we generally don't this give much of an opportunity for our identifications to subside because we're so eager to get back into the plot. So this is 
sure, um, an interlude into reality, but unless our motivation shifts, we keep being trapped into the fictional world. The interlude I just proposed for the movie house is very similar to the interlude that the musician John Cage introduced in some of the concert, his concerts. In fact, he has a piece that became quite famous called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, first performed in 1952 somewhere in New York. It was even performed at Bard College some time ago, I mean, long ago, I think. In this piece, a pianist would get on the stage, sit at the piano, open the keyboard lid, and after four minutes and 33 seconds, walked off the stage, period. I, I, it wasn't very agreeable for most of the public, I must say. <laughs> Surely this piece acquired great notoriety in the world of music, but what else did it accomplish? Surely this foray into silence in the midst of a concert hall is a powerful reminder that sound and silence belong together. That you cannot have one without the other. Really? Although we are chasing always after the sounds, <laughs> but the silence makes the sounds possible. So it is surely a step towards the reality of this whole, away from just chasing after seductive themes and melodies or whatever. Now, there's somebody who comes to these retreats uh, quite regularly. He's not here today. His name is James Pritchard, and he comes from Princeton. Some of you may remember him. And he recently sent me a manuscript, or publication, I don't know that, um, in which he wrote that much of the scholarly work concerning this piece really is taking us away from the direct experience that the piece proposed and into the world of ideas and stories. And let, let me read a little bit what he says here. is that Cage's understanding of silence could never be communicated directly through a piece of music of any kind. 
either with sounds or without them. He may have written four minutes and 33 seconds to put the silent time structure on display to make the origin of his music clear. But the best it can be is a pointer to this place, easily mistaken as a silence itself. I believe, says Pritchard, that Cage recognized this problem himself as he downplayed the importance of four minutes, 33 seconds, as a work of music after its creation. So he tried this out. That's a good suggestion. Eh? I fully agree with what uh, James Pritchard say. It's a, it's a powerful reminder, sure, of the oneness of silence and sound, but it's not necessarily transformative, unless we are ready to be transformed by it. So, I've invited you to go to the movie house. I invited you to go to the to the music hall. Let's now come right here to the meditation hall. In coming to the meditation hall, the intention is not to get lost in flights of imagination as in the movie house and even in the concert hall. So, at least we are ahead on that uh, criterion. We, we come here committed to be present with the real, to things as they are. To accomplish that, our basic assignment is to choose a focus of attention, could be an object, could be um, the breath, so that the mind becomes coherent, unified, and can penetrate whatever it turns on to. Problem is, as we all have experienced, as I experienced myself at times, problem is that much too often, while we may succeed in focusing on the primary object of attention, the mind finds it difficult to stay put there, to sustain that focus. And then it starts going back and forth, from presence to absence to presence to absence, absence. All is very valuable. But when is that the transformative attitude going to click in and take root of our whole being? The shuttling back and forth is indeed step in the right direction. But the transformative shift as yet to come and will come when the mind really opens up 
to be fully present. So, in order to be able to see consistently things as they are, what does it take for that to happen? Let's look at that again in the context of the movie house, the concert hall, and the meditation hall. In the movie house, for me, is so clear. I cannot really be able to see the movie as it is if I am trapped in the grip of my ego, of the I, who, who is totally dedicated to identify itself. It thrives in identification. <coughs> and, and it cannot overcome the compulsion to become this or that character in the plot. So unless we can loosen that up, we'll be primarily present with the fiction, not with things as they are. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching the movie. Of course not. The question is, can we watch the movie openly? See the movie as a movie. And see whatever else is around as whatever else is around. How do we crack the solidity of identification? I think the key to the motivation to de-identify has to be, for me, it has been the recognition of the pain that results from identifications at all levels. From the unsatisfactoriness of being trapped, trapped in identities, whether they are generated on the screen, whether they are generated by ourselves, or however. So the issue is, has the motivation to de-identify ripened in us? If not, I think it's very important to help it, to encourage it. And then, of course, we go to the movies, we see the movie, we even, may even identify for a moment, but we're not trapped in the identity. Let's now, for a moment, go visit the concert hall. Here, again, the critical issue is whether we can let go of our clinging to, here, not ego identity, but, a, well, indirectly ego identity too, identity, identification with the clinging to the melodies, the themes, the motifs that we are there are familiar in the piece. Oh yes, that's it, there it is. Oh yes, that's it. Of course it's wonderful to enjoy music. 
but to be open with it, not to do it in order to cultivate our ego. And so, we are also willing to recognize that there cannot be any sounds without silence underneath, just as there cannot be any clouds without sky. When we open up to the silence in the concert hall, we also open up to receive, like with the sky, all that comes our way. Going back to James Pritchard article again, he quotes somebody, I think it was an Indian woman, I forgot her name now. She, he quotes somebody who taught John Cage that the perp, quote, the purpose of music is to quiet and sober the mind, making it susceptible to divine influences. Something I'm sure those of you who frequent this monastery are very first have familiar with first hand, or should I say first hearing or first mind. You know? And my dear St. John of the Cross, San Juan de la Cruz, is very eloquent about this. He, he talks about music here. There will be for the soul a harmonious symphony of sublime music, surpassing all concerts and melodies of the world. The soul calls this music silent because it's tranquil and quiet knowledge without the sound of voices. And thus there is in the sweetness of music, in it, the sweetness of music and the quietude of silence. Accordingly, the soul says that her beloved is silent music because in him she knows and enjoys this symphony of spiritual music. Not only is he silent music, but he's also silent solitude. This is almost identical with silent music, for even though that music is silent to the natural senses and faculties, it is sounding solitude for the spiritual faculties. When these spiritual faculties are alone and empty of all natural forms and apprehensions, for natural forms and forms and apprehensions, they can receive in a most sonorous way the spiritual sound of the excellence of God in himself and in his creatures. the language of God is not the language that I or the tradition that I practice and use, but it's just a difference in language. The fact is that I'm totally in tune with what St. John is saying. 
and I, I, I find in his reference to silent music, musica callada, as he said in the original, uh, quite relevant. And so, paraphrasing St. John, we need to empty our spiritual faculties of all natural forms and apprehensions. How do we do that? For me, and for many of you too, the arena is the meditation hall. It is here that we are empowered to tulip in order to open up radical, radically to both emptiness and form, to both music and silence, without clinging to anything, and surely not to our egos, for sure. And at the same time, it is here that we learn to see through the various, various forms of resistances that our conditioned mind erects. And we recognize resistances as just resistances, that's all. Things as they are. A resistance is a resistance. No big deal. It is here that we learn to see through the various attempts of our ego to retain control of the situation and to see them as just that. A part of me wants to take over, you know, but there's the rest of me watching, all of me watching, you know. The first step, of course, as I mentioned yesterday, and tooling up is to unify the mind, focus the mind. I describe that using this simile of the telescope. A unifying mind can penetrate, see directly into all that comes its way, not seeking to cling or latch onto anything. It can Simply watch the circus of life come by. The, see things show up and pass away. And in this process, what is real is the hearing, the sensing, the thinking, the emoting. And we need to pay attention to those bare experiences, not to the construct that we built on top of them. The Buddha puts it very simply as he is a master doing. He's dialoguing with somebody called Malinkya Putta. Here, says the Buddha, Malinkya Putta, regarding things seen, heard, sensed, and cognized by you. In the scene, there will be merely the scene. In the herd, there will be merely the herd. In the sense, there will be merely the sensed. In the cognized, there will be merely the cognized. That's it. 
not construction. All sensing is simply seen to arise, stay for a time, and then pass away. When the mind is not clinging to anything, is free to be fully present with the coming and going of all experience. And so, we finally come to our senses in more sense than one. The extraordinary bonus of this being with our bare, bare senses, bare awareness, is that it reveals a space of mind where fabrications cannot stick. Space that allows experience to emerge and dissolve freely following the natural rhythm. You see, as the mind has stopped in it, its construction about whatever it senses, as the Buddha said, in the sense of there being just the sensed, it also stops all construction about what is not sensed. And so, the boundlessness of our mind becomes truly available, not constructions erected onto it. And we can experience it in all its pristine beauty. What a gift. So, let's uh, sit for a few moments. Uh, letting this reverberate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.